and welcome back to Think Green with your host, the Inner Sustainability Council, aka ISC. I'm Chelsea. I'm Jenny. I'm Liv. And I'm Ilma. In this podcast, we will cover topics on how to be a more sustainable individual and community member, not only to better your own life, but to better the planet as a whole. We will discuss topics ranging from plant-based eating to environmental justice to green consumerism and more. We hope that this podcast will be a way for you to rethink your lifestyle and gain more awareness of the environmental issues and movements occurring now. Today, we are very excited to have our first guest on the podcast, Courtney, who is the Associated Students Associate Vice President of Environmental Justice Affairs. I will be calling that ASEJA for the rest of the time. Okay, so hi, Courtney. Um, I guess you want to introduce a little bit about yourself first, just... Most definitely. Uh, So as mentioned earlier, hi, my name is Courtney Washington. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the Associate Vice President of the ASUCC's Office of Environmental Justice Affairs. Basically what my role is, is I'm responsible of leading a really great group of people in a student government that's responsible for educating the campus about the intersections of environmental and social justice. I'm also responsible for being a part of the decision-making process and making our campus a more equitable and environmentally cautious space. That's a little bit about kind of what I do, the work I do and stuff like that. Okay, great. So today we will be talking about environmental justice, of course, um, and just having kind of like an unstructured conversation kind of about environmental justice. Um, we were talking before about we were when we were prepping for this uh, podcast, we, we had like some really great conversations. So um, Courtney, if you just want to start I don't know, doing your thing. Most definitely. So uh, one thing I did want to acknowledge is uh, the fact that it is Indigenous Heritage Month and being that we our school sits on the Kumeyaay land, I wanted to kind of acknowledge that and kind of the work my office is doing right now is a lot about Indigenous history and culture. And just really looking at if we're talking about environmental justice and marginalized communities, one of the most marginalized communities in our country that really helped with a lot of kind of managing land and knowing how to work the land and helping with climate change is important to acknowledge. So I wanted to start with that. But I also want to begin with this really interesting quote I found from the New York Times. Uh, This professor, his name is Robert D. Bullard. He is a professor at Texas Southern University. And the quote is, I'd like to see these, referring to white-led environmental groups, start to embrace the whole concept of justice, fairness, and equity. Those statements need to be followed up with concerted effort to address the underlying conditions that make for despair. And I wanted to kind of start off with this quote and talking about this conversation because the main issue and kind of what's kind of brought to life the modern environmental justice movement was neglect. There was neglect for not only marginalized communities, but there was as well the needs of marginalized communities, but as well as the input and kind of what their abilities and agency were. And so historically, a lot of environmentalist movements not only neglected those needs, but also were kind of often uh, not human-centered. And what happens is when we have a movement that's not human-centered, where humans often face some of the worst impacts is kind of what our issue was. So in general, when we're talking about environmental justice versus environmentalism, the main thing to talk about is who and what. So when environmentalism happens, it's often focusing on sustainability and it's focusing on individual choices, which are great things. And if you have the ability and privilege to do so, I still highly encourage them. But what they don't look at is the systems and the situations that create certain environmental crises to happen and how those often reflect 
other systemic forms of oppression that exist in our own country. Like if we look at the way that cities are built, if we look at the way resources are distributed, there's obviously communities that are more marginalized and therefore face the worst um, impacts of uh, the climate crisis. And that's kind of where the need for environmental justice kind of sparked from there. And so when we talk about also another issue when it comes to environmental um, environmentalism versus environmental justice is that there's often a huge blame culture, I like to call it, when it comes to who and what, like, for example, when we talk about sustainability, a lot of times it's a very privileged action to take because a lot of times it's more expensive. It requires more resources, more access to certain resources. Not everyone's going to be able to afford a $40 water bottle. Not everyone's going to be able to go to a grocery store because they may not have a grocery store nearby to purchase better made foods. Not everyone's going to be able to walk or take public transit because the way the cities are planned, a lot of times they have to take cars. And so when we blame individuals about the choices that they can or can't make, we're neglecting the fact that they often don't have a choice in that. And so when we shift away from this kind of individual blame culture to really looking at the systems that create this sort of oppression that create and further the climate crises, we're really gonna start getting into the root of what we need to do as environmentalists. And so uh, I kind of already been rambling, so if anyone wants to kind of hop in. Yeah, um, this, what you're talking about kind of reminded me of that thing that happened with the Coca-Cola bottles, how they went from being glass bottles that could be, um, they were taken back and washed, sanitized, and then distributed back again. And eventually, you know, got replaced into the things that we use now, the plastic bottle, which in turn is making a lot of waste and is affecting our environment pretty negatively. And so I think that, um, the shift from focusing on the corporation, um, having the corporation be accountable for the actions they're taking and just switching that to the individual. I think that's, I, like, I look back at it and that's kind of crazy. Like, I don't know, that's my comment. Yeah, um, to add on to like the shift of a product from something that it's more like reusable and sustainable, um, I was doing some research on um, like plastic utensils and how they came to be. And um, I actually learned from a National Geographic article that plastic utensils actually kind of were born in like the 1970s. Um, people wanted to go on picnics and like they would sell these like kits that would be like a plastic picnic tray and it had like everything that you needed for the picnic like built into it so a fork spoon knife and cup and you just break it off use it and then you can just throw it away and so that kind of like that one like that small desire to like you know go on a nice picnic and not have to like you know wash stuff or like put dirty dishes in like a picnic basket that's reusable kind of like led to this like insane like culture where um, like this quote from the, the National Geographic article says, like the plastic company buys 44 million disposable utensils per month in the US alone. And globally, plastic cutlery is a $2.6 billion business. So I don't know, that's just kind of crazy that like, yeah, that's think, my. Yeah, I think the crazy thing is that sort of become the new normal. So we have these areas that don't even have access to sort of like the, the natural things that we used to rely on. And I'm sure we're going to, Courtney, you're going to talk about food deserts and examples of things 
that tie in this sort of new consumerist culture into how the disparity has propagated through society. And I think that it's, it's important to remember that this tie between these big businesses trying to make a profit always hurts those um, in a position of less power. Most definitely. I think you got, well, both bring up a good point about convenience. And that was kind of the main marketing point for a lot of like these like quick to use, ready to use products. And the art, the audience they were targeting isn't the audience we kind of think about when it comes to at least an environmental justice perspective. They were kind of targeting the everyday person. But if we're thinking about like a single mother who has four kids and works, so doesn't have time to go like make a properly cooked meal. So you just get drive through food. That's another like instance of kind of like who ended up kind of utilizing those products as more often. But I think it's also to kind of, kind of kind of go where we're going from here is how going back to the topic of environmentalism versus environmental justice, environmentalism therefore kind of neglects the systemic issue of climate change. It kind of treats it as an individual issue. So when we talk about like overconsumption and talking about like waste products, it treated as uh, you as an individual are making that choice to do that. So you're making the environment worse versus you don't have access to buy reusable products. You don't have access to uh, not use a car. You don't have access to this. You aren't able to do so. And it's not more so taking the blame off the person. That's a commonly used argument against it. It's like, oh, well, you're shifting the blame away from the individual. No, what we are saying is that there are systemic issues that are happening around them that they do not have control of. And so you are able to do as best as you possibly can. And I think food deserts and food swamps are actually a great example of that. Uh, before we get into that, I kind of just wanted to throw in a quick definition of environmental justice given by the EPA. Uh, so what they define it as is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. In short term, what they mean to say is that if we're going to talk about the climate crisis, environmental issues, we wanna make sure that certain communities aren't at a disadvantage because of a certain race, ethnicity, income status, or even ability status. I really, um, if we get a chance to talk about um, disability and environmental justice and kind of, if we look at certain situations, which I'll get into later, looking at how their community is definitely impacted by environmental justice. So, and I know we talked about this, but I kind of wanted to get into food deserts and food swamps. I feel like that would be a pretty good um, topic to talk about. So like one pretty cool example I saw was there was this video series on TikTok by this woman and I need to find her name. But what she did is she mapped uh, the locations of Trader Joe's and Whole Foods in certain metropolitan areas throughout the country. And what she found is that the only place you could find tra uh, Trader Joe's or Whole Foods in areas that were only high income or that were just recently gentrified. But you couldn't find, not, not only could you not find Trader Joe's or Whole Foods in areas that weren't those, but you also couldn't find any sort of really healthy grocery store. All you could find were food swamps, which are congregations of large, usually like usually inexpensive and fast food, and food deserts, which is a term to uh, describe the lack of like grocery stores or accessible food. And so in San Diego, especially in a lot of these larger metropolitan, typically like blue states, they have this issue of where they have the access and the resources available, but who is getting it? It's just failing the communities and failing in general, the climate. So I think if you guys want to add any topics about that or topics. Yeah, 
on the topic of like Trader Joe's, like this is more like anecdotal, but um, I like grew up in Riverside and like going to Trader Joe's was like not a very, like if you wanted groceries, like there was a Stater Brothers and there was a Vons, like, you know, a couple minutes away, maybe a Ralph's sometimes. But like, if you wanted something from Trader Joe's, you would have to drive 20 minutes in either direction, north or south. Um, you know, they were both 20 minutes away from me all in like these like very nice, like Courtney said, like like recently gentrified or like more like like well off in a wealthier like income bracket like areas. And then so coming to San Diego and like UCSD, you know, like we have like Trader Joe's is like pretty close to like our campus and also um, most of like the off-campus housing, like um, a lot of the buses go there. Like now, like my, I guess, the things that I can cook, like a lot of it is based off of like grocery from Trader Joe's. And so when I go home, like on for like breaks or stuff, like I have to drive like like 20 minutes to like get things that I'm like accustomed to, you know? So I just thought that was interesting to share. And also on the topic of like food swamps, um, there is a tweet that I saw once uh, from Twitter user Ferris underscore Bueller, and it says, UC Berkeley students asked for a grocery store near campus instead of yet another boba shop. I'm happy to announce that as a compromise, you'll be getting a very bougie white-owned dispensary on Telegraph. Um, so I thought that was just kind of funny. And I've seen a lot of things from my, my friends and peers who do go to Berkeley that they have to like take a bus uh, like 30 minutes or so just to get, just to get groceries and like actual edible sustainable food versus like something quick like a snack or a cafe or a boba shop or something um so yeah and the crazy thing about that as we were saying while we were t discussing before the podcast is that Berkeley is seen as this you know super liberal conscious um place and it's actually ingrained in some of these business-minded systems that you know, that's the profitable way of doing things. And we need to deconstruct the way we view certain communities and really look at the systems in place in those communities. Yeah, and speaking of the city of Berkeley, I was listening to NPR yesterday and um, they came on with this um, KQED news clip about um, single family home zoning. And this originated in the city of Berkeley. So yet again, this like, idea that this super liberal city has all of these very non-liberal policies. Um, but basically, my Berkeley geography is not great, but there are a few very wealthy cities or very wealthy neighborhoods and areas of Berkeley that are um, zoned for single family homes. So the only thing that can be built there is single family homes. So basically, it's only like affluent people and the majority of the, that area is white. Um, and so going from there, um, you can't build factories and, or duplexes or apartments or any kind of more affordable housing. Um, and then also any kind of factory or anything that would give like negative health risks to um, the people living in this more affluent area. And so it, it, it's literally how the city was built that more affordable housing is closer to more dangerous um, factors. I don't know what word I'm looking for there, but yeah, they're more likely to live next to dumps and factories and just because of this policy that I think is still in place. 
Most definitely. Um, going back to the Trader Joe example, I wanted to give credit to um, user at Kel.Drigo. She was the person who's kind of been going through this whole series. And if you have time, I would definitely check that out to see. But I think it's important in highlighting all these different issues, especially in Berkeley, when we talk about the liberal city. This just shows a, a direct example of how climate change itself is a systemic issue. It's not just about the individual choices you make, but if you have actual urban planning and product development that is catered towards helping like high income people, non-POCs, if the actual cities and structures themselves are built to continually marginalize people that have already been marginalized by other systems of oppression, then you're going to continue that change. And what environmental justice does is say, hey, these systems of oppression are making certain communities who already are going through injustices have a worse experience. What we want to make sure is when we're creating policy and creating change, we are not forgetting and neglecting them. But I think it's also important to highlight the idea, like this is kind of related when we talk about privilege and power and power structures. It's important to highlight that these communities have agency, they have the power, they just do not have the access to resources. So when we talk about being, I guess, any sort of activist or an advocate, we wanna make sure we don't get this savior complex and think we're going in to fix what you didn't do right. What we are doing is saying, we know what we think is right, but you know what your community needs. So use us to guide you, but you have your own agency, you know what you need. So I think this in the future, kind of we're looking at how it, I guess, to go from here and that all depend on these next couple hours. <laughs> but just looking at, when we look at trying to fix the climate crisis, we wanna make sure we have uh, people from those communities involved in the policy making process, involved in the grassroots organizing process, involved in just simply getting the word out. Like I know people often don't really recognize the need for diverse representation alone. Alone itself is not good, but if you have that coupled with having them involved in the pro process of creating change, I think it's very important. And so I wanted also to talk quickly about like a local issue in San Diego in particular. Um, so there was an article done by Voices of San Diego that um, looked at five uh, San Diego schools where toxic waste was found. And I think us living in San Diego, we kind of have seen how like, call it what it is, it is segregation based on race and social economic status. You can see how San Diego looks way different in La Jolla versus South Bay versus Chula versus La Mesa. Like there's distinct differences. And so when you kind of look at where these toxic waste sites are, it's not shocking to see where they're located. So if you guys want to kind of touch upon that. Well, I think it's just important to acknowledge sort of how like these ways of getting rid of hazardous waste is you would think that, you know, we produce hazardous waste and it gets sent out and disposed of somehow. But I think that it's sort of a misconception that when it leaves your grasp, you know, it's being taken care of. And this whole idea of like having entities that are protecting us and taking care of us is really one of the biggest misconceptions that exists today because not only, I mean, not only is the trash that we're producing just taken to landfills and places that aren't being regulated and properly managed in the way that needs to occur for us to not have long lasting effects that are already going to be something that we have to deal with retroactively, even if we were to take action now. But I think that the thing is, is that when you are in these communities where you don't see it, it becomes sort of like, it doesn't exist for the people who don't experience it. But there are many populations and primarily minority and um, 
minority populations that are deal with the hazardous waste that is thrown out by communities that are not suffering as much economically. And I think that, um, you know, there are schools sitting on toxic waste sites and there are children who have health conditions because of it. It's not, you know, it's, it's really prevalent. And I, I, I learned, I took a class about environmental chemistry and I learned about several examples of directly correlated increase in disease. And you can see this in many forms of disease and not only hazardous waste, but, you know, air pollution associated with higher rates of asthma in primarily um, areas where healthcare isn't as accessible. And, you know, that's just one example of a ricochet effect of putting waste out of sight from communities that are at a higher economic standing. So I think that's really where we, we're going to link several things um, with this podcast for you to check out. Um, so definitely go take a look at those, especially maps that show the differences in pollution in areas that um, such as this Cal Enviro, sorry, I was gonna say, um, yeah, the Cal Enviro, Enviro Screen 30 is um, what Courtney has been referring to. And that is an excellent way to visually see the difference in pollution. And you can sort of pick up on how the areas that are typically um, of a higher economic standing definitely see less of the impacts. And it's just a, you know, ricocheting effect of not taking care of it. I want to like touch or going back on the toxic waste example, like um, there, even though this like kind of sentiment was about gun control, when like gun control, like uh, laws weren't passed in the wake of um, I can't remember the elementary school, but like, I mean, there's been so many like school shootings where like, like, you know, like children, like these are like innocent children, like who have like died and like our Congress like still refuses to pass like gun control laws. And so like, there's kind of the sentiment that like America like doesn't care like about children. They care more about profit like, and the NRA too kind of specifically, like they care more about profit than bodies and lives. And so like, I think like, like this going back to this like school site, like toxic waste example, like these are children of like underrepresented and under underserved communities whose like living area is literally being used as like a dump site, which like no land should ever be like used for that. But also like if that doesn't like make you angry and like make you like see that like like there needs to be change in like not just like within the individual, but like within our system, like, I don't, I don't know, like what, what will make you angry, you know? And I think it's also quick to um, highlight that it's very telling what groups they prioritize. And I wouldn't even just say it's children. I think it's black and brown bodies. If you want to be specific, if we're going to be real honest, the recent months, if they haven't shown you that the systems in our country favor profit over specifically black and brown bodies. I think that's something 
especially as environmentalists and environmental advocates, we should bring that into our literature and work and make sure we're prioritizing the needs of BIPOC communities and especially disabled communities in this time as well, because this is just a quick example, but if you look at Hurricane Katrina and if you look at hurricanes in general, the most more times than not, people with disabilities are often the ones left behind. They're often the ones left behind because they have resources that aren't attained for by our systems. And so that was just something quick I wanted to throw in, but yeah. Yeah, looking at the um, cases of, like looking at who contracts coronavirus is very scary. And it, it's all connected because it all makes sense because these are people who can't stay home, they have to go to work, and most likely they're essential workers. And there are people who are more likely to live in a household with more people in it, um, also more closely together. Like it, it's just, ugh. the more I look at it, the more angry it makes me. The fact that everything is just all connected. <laughs> and <sighs> yeah, and then even just looking at it from a system side, we can already see with uh, the current administration has not had the best records. Like, I think if we have time, I wanted to get into the quick little rundown of the history of EJA. Like in 1982, there was an incident in Warren County, North Carolina, where black residents found that there was huge amounts of just toxic waste in their area. And when the EPA went and evaluated, they noticed, oh, wow, if you look up all across the South, all the areas where toxic waste is being released are in communities that are mainly POC. And so then uh, in 1992, George H.W. Bush created the Office of Environmental Justice Affairs specifically under the EPA. That office was maintained until the 2000s when his son, George W. Bush decided, you know what? We're gonna make it for all people, not just black and brown communities. And then what that issue, that was kind of the first issue in itself is that when you erase the needs for typically minor, marginalized communities, you often kind of get, I think of that picture everyone posts when you have the kids on the stepping stools. If you give everybody the same size stepping stool, one kid six foot, one kid's four foot, one kid's two foot, yeah, they're all getting equal opportunities, but they have different circumstances that need to kind of level out the playing field. And then with our, uh, in 2017, or no, and we could, 2016, we had a very interesting election with our current person in office. And let's just say that he's continued the legacy of deregulating and not caring about the environment. So I don't know if anyone wanted to get into the EPA record under Trump. Yeah, and just, yeah, to kind of touch on that, just to let you know, under the Trump's EPA, there's more than half that lack expertise in the things that they're doing. And there's 28% people of people tied to fossil fuel industries so that I feel like that that will tell you something uh on top of that um 31% there was a 31% budget cut to the EPA I, I'm pretty sure you can tell by the statistics it's very apparent where the the interests lie for serving these people who need I can't even talk anymore I'm so like but yeah there's so much environmental injustice happening and the resources are not even there because of the current administration it's very hard for specific laws regulations and policies to even be enforced because of the way that our epa system is shifting but there is hope you know there we there we presented a lot of negative things and a lot of times 
there is a lot of negative, but there is hope. I think with the election just happening, I want I hope people keep the energy of getting involved. Voting is not the only way to be engaged as a person because voting in itself is a privilege. And as you've seen with the blatant acts of voter suppression, not everyone's able to do it. So I think right now is a huge time for people to get involved in a lot of grassroots organizing, mutual aid, because even if you're not a student on a campus, environmental justice is impacting you. And so really look for ways that you could do work in your own community. It could be something as easy as starting a community garden. I know one big thing right now is people making community fridges. So if you don't have access to fresh produce or resources, put a fridge randomly in the community, people could take whatever they need. So that's kind of just some examples of ways that you as an individual could kind of help out your own community when it comes to environmental justice. But then again, please also try not to bear the burden of fixing the climate crises, because as you've mentioned multiple times, this in itself is a very systemic issue that caused that's in need of lots of legislative and uh, policy change. So, yeah. And I think, like, on top of what Courtney said, like, hold your Congress people like accountable, like they're there to serve you, like your their constituents, like they should be like listening to you and like hearing you out and like you should be represented through them, like they're there to represent you. You can um, send a letter or an email or a lot of very nice things to the office of your representative. I was just gonna say like this is one of the biggest elections that we've had in the course of my lifetime personally, but there are midterm elections, there are smaller local representatives that really play a big role in shaping the way your community is structured. And so I think it's really important to educate yourself and spend the time to learn what's going on in your community, in your state. Um, there's more than just the two candidates. So for pre the presidency, so we got to work after, even if there is a, a certain outcome that is positive in many ways, there's a lot of work to be done after the election, no matter what the turnout is. Definitely agree. Please uh, don't think that voting every four years means you're involved in the community decisions because a lot of the decisions when it comes to environmental justice, it happens every day. It happens at the local level, it happens at the state level, it happens even internationally. And so even if you don't think you can go out and do grassroots work, share whatever information you can. People like to sleep on social media a lot, but when it comes to getting out general information and small tidbits, I think it's a great way to um, post resources. A lot of the big thing right now is mutual aid funds. If you know any um, grassroots organizers in your area that like do donations, you can do stuff like that. But also remember that it is a privileged position. And so please do not feel that you have to do so as well. So uh, if we're talking about an example of environmental justice that's often neglected, uh, especially when we're looking at black and brown communities, I always love to bring up this example. This is one of the first things I learned in environmental justice from one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Professor Aradna Chapati. And so there's a county called Lawrence County in Morgan County in Alabama. It's predominantly POC, mainly black, and it's also low income. A lot of times when we talk about like water quality issues, a lot of people um, had to flinch and that is great because they are still going through a water crisis. It's been what, six years and they still don't have clean water. But Lawrence and Morgan County is another example of the ways that systemic racism plays in with climate change. Lawrence County, Alabama uh, basically has had some of the largest amounts of lead in their water, I think since the 50s or 60s. 
And yeah, so there is a large amount of like perifluorotannic acid and like different types of stuff in their water supply. And the issue that has been is that the EPA has been working with this community for what, over 50 years, but there has still not been any progress. And I think it's very interesting because this is one of many examples when it comes to lead, particular in black and brown communities. Like for example, Decatur, Alabama has this issue, Parkersburg, West Virginia, Hussick Falls, New York, and New Jersey public water systems. I think water is a great way to kind of look at systemic racism and environmental justice and in general the climate crises. Because when we're talking about toxic waste and toxic release, what happens is these plants, which Lawrence and Morgan County, Alabama obviously has, when they get rid of the waste, the waste therefore infiltrates in the water system, therefore people are drinking lead. And if you do not know, lead water is a very bad thing. Do not drink water with lead in it whatsoever. I think another example to bring up when it comes to environmental justice and low-income communities is uh, looking at the Aaron Brockovich story. Erin uh, Brockovich was a woman located in San Bernardino, California. She lived in a town. It was a pretty small, low-income town in the desert area. Basically, the issue with uh, her town was that there was found to be a large amount of hexavalent chromium in the water. What hexavalent chromium is, is a contaminant that is used for a lot of steel planning and manufacturing. But what happens is when ingested in large amounts, it has the ability to lead to multiple types of um, cancers, reproductive issues, so on and so forth. And so what she did is she sued PG&E back in 2000. It was a really large case. And PG&E was found guilty in basically like to toxic waste disruption and stuff like that. And so there was a large amount of laws that followed. But the issue that had occurred because of that was back in 2014 after the California Department of Public Health kind of like reevaluated their standards for the amount of water. Here comes a large lobbying firm suing the California Department of Public Health in 2017 and therefore California and the EPA goes back on regulations. And I point these examples out to show that even if you do get some sort of change in progress and you are beginning to work with these systems. Remember that these systems were never meant to benefit certain communities. And so it is important to kind of point out the systemic issue of just, it's not just, it's not just the planet getting hotter. It's not just turtles dying. It's not just more trash existing. It's the misuse and poor allocation of resources. It's not being able to get rid of waste in a way that doesn't impact communities. It's not being able to help disabled people during natural disasters that occur because of the climate crises. And so I think in just looking at these small little case studies of a larger, broader systemic issue of environmental justice and the climate crises, it kind of brings you back to human centeredness and kind of makes you realize what needs to be done from a systems level and what you can do from an individual level. So I think those are a couple of cool examples I always like to bring up. Can I just ricochet off that really quick? Um, so just, I think a really great aspect of what environmental justice is really, it really attacks the root of the issue. You know, you have, I actually just worked in a lab earlier this year that dealt with PFOA, PFOS and PFOA. And these chemicals bioaccumulate in the body and they lead directly to Carcin their carcinogens, they lead to the development of tumors by interacting with DNA. And, you know, that raises disease levels in these communities. And rather than attacking, like, rather than 
looking at it from a perspective of like, oh, increased disease risk means increased need for medical companies to come in and profit off of the sick. You know, environmental justice really attacks the root of the issue, which is the and the toxicity in the water in the land that is causing the diseases in the first place. And so I think it's really important to look at the whole picture sometimes instead of necessarily just band-aids for the issues. All right, well, now that we have covered a lot about environmental justice and what it is and the history of the movement, um, I guess we should talk a little bit more about the Office of Environmental Justice Affairs at UC San Diego and what Courtney plans to do with her position this year, just to bring it as, as local as possible. <laughs> Most definitely. So um, as I mentioned earlier, I am the Associate Vice President of the Envi Office of Environmental Justice Affairs. Basically, my role kind of connects my office to the student government in itself, because the office, you could kind of see it as like our student government is very reflective of the actual government. So my office would be kind of like the EPA, but like actually, yeah. <laughs> so uh, what the work we do, because things are, are remote and personally I am following the public health procedures, I'm keeping everything remote until honestly the entire year just to make things safer as of right now. So we are really focusing on our campaigns of really the education and outreach aspect. So upcoming next week, actually, we have a panel called Think Globally, Act Locally, where we uh, have different on and off campus partners, professors, organizers kind of talk about what it looks like to do community work in the environmental justice space. Some of the people we have coming, uh, Kathy Gear from UCSD, she's a professor and she also works at UCSD Green New Deal. We also have Francisco Garcia, who is a member of the Environmental Health Coalition coming. And so that's like a really cool event we have coming up. We also are going to continue our case study series, which is basically a short little research paper slash like we have different versions that have like different types of multimedia. Like the first one we'll have coming out is gonna include a transcript from an interview we've had. So basically it's looking at different environmental justice issues, whether it be like domestically or internationally and kind of just looking at what's the issue at hand, what's the environmental justice perspective and where do we go from there? Our first one coming out, it's gonna be out around like the end of this week. We're gonna be looking at standing with the Kumeyaay at the border and kind of the history of environmental justice when it comes to our own people in a land we, we occupy currently. Um, we also will be doing a case study at the end of the quarter, which is gonna look at the California wildfires, history of California wildfires, and also the history of indigenous practices when it comes to containing fires before that was banned. And so in, un unintentionally, all of our quarters kind of have themes when it comes to the work we're doing. So this quarter's theme is kind of like indigenous issues. So that was kind of cool. Next quarter, we're gonna be doing a lot of work when it comes to environmental racism. We're gonna be having a movie series throughout the term where students can come watch a movie and have a really cool discussion. My um, social justice intern, Rodney, has found some really great pieces I'm excited to work with. We'll also be doing some environmental racism case studies. So kind of talking about things we talked about in this podcast and we talk about uh, single family zoning, we talk about food deserts and food swamps. Those are direct examples of environmental racism and that kind of ties into environmental justice. And then in the spring, of course, we have Earth Week, which we're still planning the events for and stuff like that. But that's gonna be really exciting as well. I hope to like, our goals for this year is really just to educate the campus on what environmental justice is and really what AS is in general, because there are a lot of things AS is and isn't a lot of things AS can and can't do. And really a lot of people didn't really know what the offices did and rightfully so, because they weren't that advertised. And so what my office really wants to do this year is kind of educate the campus community and just the general San Diego area about what environmental justice is, what it's not and how you can get involved. And so I guess that's kind of like my goals for the year for the office. 
Um, our Instagram is at AS Environmental Justice. If you ever just want to see what we're working on, we have like a link tree with cool documents and stuff like that. So yeah. It sounds awesome. I, I'm really excited to see all these events and programs. Just a question for like possible listeners. Is anyone able to go to the events that you're holding or is it specifically catered towards just UCSD students? So our upcoming event next week is open to, I think the UCSD community. So if you register, you should be able to get a password. All of our case studies will be sent uh, posted to the public. What's gonna happen is we're gonna give a brief intro to the case study on like our Instagram and then a post the actual like page, like research paper on our link tree. Um, we want to make our events as successful as possible, not only just to the community, but if we need like translators, if we need ASL interpreters, if we need closed captioning, please let us know that as well. We intend to make all our events as successful as possible. Um, when it comes to the programming, most of it is open to the outside community. It just depends because of the way that AS works with Zoom. Like I know because we are an AS office, we can't have all events purely open, but when it comes to like our research and engagement, like when it comes to posts like that, most people can access it. I hope that answered the question, but yeah. Yeah, thank you. All right, if that's it, then thank you so much for joining us today, Courtney. This was a really fun conversation. Woo! Thank you for having me. This was really fun. And honestly, I could go for hours talking about environmental justice, so. I was gonna say, we definitely should have collaborations in the future and um, it's great to have you on. Thank you.